Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Incomparable, number 671, June 2023. Welcome back to The Incomparable. I'm guest host Lex Friedman because Jason Snell foolishly let me have the reins. Uh, And today, as you know from the title, we're talking about Barry. When I first approached Jason and said, hey, the Mothership hasn't done an episode about Barry. Should we? Uh, Jason's response was, it's a little off format. A little off format. But I'd allow it. So with that blessing, here we are. I'm joined by not one, but two Brians. First, you you just heard them laugh. It's Brian Hamilton. Hi, Brian. Hi, uh, did both of you bring a monologue? <laughs> We're going to walk and talk. Um, I'm also joined by another Brian, uh, my co-host on Sorkinated, Brian Warren. Hi, Brian. Hey, everybody. Uh, I kind of wonder if I'm, I, I want to be Noah Hank, but I'm afraid I'm the Kusano of this operation. Oh, man. <laughs> That's tough. I don't know who's who. Uh, but so i will say if if you have uh, a streaming series and you were previously a star on snl i'm going to give it a shot that's that's basically how it goes with me um it's why i knew that i was going to try out ted lasso and that worked out well and it's why i knew i was going to try out barry because i was intrigued by uh by bill Hader, who i think is really talented even before i ever saw barry but uh let's start at the beginning uh um what motivated you both to decide to give barry a shot in the first place I got to say, I had a little bit of a crush on Bill Hader from the beginning, just because I think he, this person is freaking funny. And so I was like, well, even just a regular interview with him or any, any kind of clip that rolls by on YouTube or something, I will watch and start giggling. And so I was like, well, sure, I'm in. I, I'm sure I will just giggle with delight about this. Turns out a little bit different than that, but uh, <laughs> I was in. Oh, that'll be a key topic, I think. And Brian Hamilton? <laughs> I loved Bill Hader for a very, very long time from SNL, from other Lonely Island movies. Uh, and I think that when Barry, well, first, Skeleton Twins came out, which was Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig doing this devastatingly beautiful uh, story about two siblings going through some really hard times. I saw that in, what, 2014 when that came out, and I was blown away by how great Bill Hader was in a serious role. And so, of course, I tried out Barry when it first came out. I was sold. I marathoned the entire first season in one day. And then the finale of the first season happened, and I realized, you know, this is great. I'll be thinking about this for a long time. And then season two came out, and I didn't watch it because I realized, you know, Mm. this is not going to be resolved for a very long time. I don't think I'm in a place where I can be left on a cliffhanger this long. And so I started from season one, episode one, again, the week of the season four finale. And here I am now marathoning (laughs) the entire series in what, two weeks? We appreciate your service. Wow. That's pretty impressive. So, I I mean, I went in in part delighted by the premise. And I guess I, I think you probably, dear listener, came into this episode assuming such, but the entire Barry series has concluded on HBO or on Max. And uh, the spoiler horn sounds for all further discussion, I guess. Right. But um, I, I went into the show and I thought that the very good that the the 
the log line, such as it was, right? If, you know, we've got a, a hitman who is, I guess, going to be drawn to acting and Henry Winkler is going to be in it. Like, of course, I was going to watch this show. Uh, and you, I think we've all alluded to this already, but the show really goes on a journey from being an explicit comedy to being something, I don't even know what it is, but not a comedy. A dark something that I don't think, I don't think season four is a comedy. I think season four is still funny. And sometimes I think it's very funny, but it's, it's not exactly a comedy, right? It's something else. This bending of genres is so, um, it, it does make it really hard show to recommend to people. I've tried recommending it to people and I can't put together a log line that, um, makes really sense as far as like why I really like it. Uh, it's, I have to keep leaning back on like, well, if you like Bill Hader, he's extremely talented and, uh, he shows a lot more depth than you think, but recommending to people that it's a, a dark comedy just isn't quite enough. I think the biggest parallel between this and another show in terms of difficult to recommend is Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Yeah. Equally incredible shows that if you are signing up for the several season run, you have to be prepared for emotional turmoil that few other shows reach those heights for. And so I feel very complicatedly about like, God, I love this show. And it's really difficult to recommend unless, you know, somebody can not not handle it, but like be there for the journey and be there for the ride, especially if while you're watching as it was airing, every single episode ends on cliffhanger. And I I think it's it's got even more parallels with those two shows you referenced, because you can especially with um, Breaking Bad there's a trick being played on you from very early on that you're not supposed to be rooting for the guy you're rooting for. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like, if you, if you finish breaking bad and you're still rooting for Walt, you have misunderstood breaking bad. And mm-hmm. I don't think you can root for Barry either. Uh, I mean, I, I say that with, I said that as if I wasn't hundred percent confident, I am hundred percent confident. You cannot be rooting for Barry. <laughs> Barry, <laughs> Barry is bad. Barry is a bad person. Um, and, uh, uh, some of that is maybe not his own fault, but he is a bad person. Uh, and I think that's that's tricky, too. There's I want to go into all the main characters because there's so many great ones. But mm-hmm. the other piece of this show, besides being genre bending, is that it also really consistently messes with reality where I still don't know what really happened in some times. Mm-hmm. Right. Like um, Sally goes on a real journey in season four where she is clearly hallucinating in real time. And I don't know what really does happen and doesn't happen. Like at one point there's an intruder in the home or maybe there isn't, but like the entire house seems to move, but we never see any of those intruders. Uh, She keeps seeing the guy she shot as various other people. He's bleeding from his eyeball as a police officer near the end of the series. Like, I don't know what's really happening to her. And then there's, I think it's season three. I was trying to find this earlier and I couldn't, but I think it's season three where Barry has a a matrix esque fight with a young girl. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, do you know the episode i'm referring to i totally yes. remember this one yes. where it's it's it it seems like it was in supernatural right she she was she was not human she was not behaving like a human but it's never acknowledged that it is impossible for this i mean barry kind of is like what the hell is going on but they never explain how it's happening and so there's beyond being like also thriller and horror and dark and comedy it's it's also something else. I wouldn't say it's not it's not sci-fi exactly, but it is it is surreal in ways that very few shows based in reality are. Yeah, they never did this in Better Call Saul or um, Breaking Bad, as far as I remember. <laughs> I, very grounded in reality. Yeah, I that dreamlike quality um, just in, endears me to it even more, though. I I remember that scene when he's <laughs> when he's battling that 
childlike creature, I guess. Uh, and she's like on all fours and walking like spider-like around the room. And um, I just, I think I had a giant smile on my face because I'm like, what are they doing to me right now? But yeah. I was in. So let's, uh, let's first, I also, before we go deeper in the characters, I guess I also want to acknowledge that Bill Hader, besides being great on this show, and a great writer on this show is a superb director on this show. One of those people who, and, and Brian Warren and I have gone through a, a, a season of getting increasingly surprised that Aaron Sorkin knows how to direct movies. But <laughs> Bill Hader is directing TV shows, which he obviously hadn't done prior, really, and kills it. Like when I was in the opening credits, if you saw that the episode was going to be directed by Bill Hader, I knew it was going to be one of the better ones because he really, mm -hmm. he really crushed it at that. And I, I, was, I was very impressed by his ability on that front. There's something about the SNL alum world right now that really kind of bends my brain. So Succession also just ended, and it was produced by Will Ferrell and Adam McKay. And yeah. Barry took a heel turn into you know, more serious acting and television creation since working with SNL, since working with Lonely Island. And I think that there's something really special about the fact that HBO scooped up and made deals with those two groups of people in particular to make very dramatic and sometimes difficult to watch shows that are also deeply subversively funny. And I'm extremely sad that both shows are over. And I really hope that trend continues, uh, if not at HBO or Max, uh, then somewhere else. But this Barry seems like the ultimate proof that this model of let's trust somebody who is an industry veteran works. And I think even on, um, Podcasts like uh, Fly on the Wall with Dana Carvey and David Spade, they've talked about how SNL cast members have to go through such a boot camp of doing all the things and seeing so much happen so quickly and efficiently. And, you know, you end up being the director of every sketch that you author and such that they, they get a whole lot of on-the-job training. So it's working. <laughs> it's working. Um, and last thing before we do start diving in a little bit more into plot and into characters, uh, I was really intrigued by the fact that the show's title card evolved over the seasons, where if there was a fifth or sixth season, at some point it would just be a red blob. <laughs> like, it started out and there was what I would call kerning, maybe. Uh, and by season four, it was like a real mush of those letters pushed oh, close together. I and never noticed that. <laughs> it's, I was actually trying to find earlier today a website that, that breaks down all those different title cards, and I, I don't see one. But... It really did start out where each letter was kind of unique. And by the, the fourth season, it was really mushed together. And I, I, to me, it just worked. I didn't give it too much thought, but like things are closing in or things are getting increasingly, increasingly claustrophobic or something. But I did feel like every aspect of the show was working for the show. Like you'd sometimes still have audio at the end credits when there's nothing left on the screen. And like shots were thoughtful and moments were thoughtful and the music was thoughtful. And I thought, hey, even the title card is thoughtful. Um <laughs> I don't know. But so uh, do you have do you have if we were doing a Barry character draft, uh, would you have to spot everyone in NoHo Hank? Like who who are your favorite characters? <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, I would say NoHo Hank. I mean, it's tough because um, I feel like uh, Henry Winkler totally chews up every scene that he's in and uh, you get these great uh, stuff about him off off camera or I, I hear these great interviews about him and i think uh barry mentions that or bill Hader mentions that 
Kusinau would bring uh, bunt cakes to <laughs> to set, and he just couldn't stop talking about the cakes. So, man, I don't know. I I, I find myself very endeared to him. But um, Noho Hank, I I, think, I feel like this Anthony Kerrigan. He's like this alien from outer space. He is in, incredibly funny, and he's like one of the first people who was just like so silly on the set. That um, yeah, I, I'd have to pick him. Noho Hank absolutely stole the show. <laughs> For me, I think my my two favorite. Uh, actors on the show that are not part of the like main main cast are the two good place alums we have kirby howell baptiste uh who plays sasha in uh Cousteau's acting class and oh my gosh her bit about seeing a horse in london i still <laughs> laugh about it every single time i think about it. and then uh darcy carden who played janet in good place who i love dearly and i just keep calling her janet whenever i watch this show i think she did an incredible job taking something as silly as the role she was given and turning it into something that was genuinely uh, it gave her this arc that most main characters on a lot of shows would be lucky to get as an actor. And she got one as like, well, I don't know, second or third tier of actor in the show to the point where she's mostly not in season four. I thought she was incredible and perfect at what she was given. I, I can't disagree with any of that. What I find especially fascinating about Noho Hank, the character, and about Anthony Kerrigan's portrayal. And I wasn't really familiar with Anthony Pryor. Uh, this is like my defining role for him. <laughs> but uh, that's a character that, uh, as you were saying, he's very silly. And again, a character kind of based on his own reality and really given some of the most farcical stuff. But he really grounds it. Like it's still, he's, he's basically never anything but hilarious on the show but <laughs> he comes at it from a place of like he fully embodies the character and it's never winking and it's never the character is silly but the performance is never silly if that makes sense and i really i really felt like if there were if there were actors i could take acting lessons from in the show <laughs> coincidentally enough uh, given that's what henry <laughs> does gene but i that he really it's, it, felt, it felt to me like a master class. Like, in part, we know Bill Hader so well that you see, hey, there's Bill Hader acting. I feel the same way about Stephen Root. Hey, there's Stephen Root as a character. And I think Stephen Root does a great job of being a truly hateable character on this show. <laughs> but, like, man, Anthony Kerrigan was so good in that role and just... I don't know. I Any moments that he wasn't on screen felt like slightly wasted moments of Barry to me. <laughs> I, I, I agree. I, he, it, it was a... It, I think the word honest comes to mind the way that you're talking about it because it, it never, there's no winking at the camera at all. And even down to like, sometimes they would show uh, Barry looking at texts from Noho Hank. And sometimes I remember he had a bitmoji of himself. Uh, there was a Noho <laughs> Hank bitmoji. And then like he would use tons of emoji and stuff other times. And um <laughs> Uh, something about like when the they were waiting for a bullet to arrive and he said mm -hmm. and, and he sent like a gif of a a cat hanging he said hang in there buddy like all that stuff just feels so consistent with him yeah really really well written and extremely well performed um, the performances are serious even though the things that they are given to do are silly but i think from a like grand irony perspective which we'll absolutely be talking about for the end of season four i feel like both Bill Hader and Anthony Kerrigan are given these cosmically absurd things to deal with. And when they respond in deadpan as themselves, it feels that much funnier that their reaction to things are, oh, wow. Oh, my God. Um, OK, I guess. And then the scene continues. And that's part of why I love the fact that Bill Hader is also the creator of the show, is that he's kind of putting himself through comedy boot camp 
to make this show and give himself uh, some of the most absurd things. Anthony Kerrigan's up there too, where he's put in situations where you know he has to run screaming out of room because a firefight broke out or something. Right. I just love the <laughs> meta of the fact that these two characters are given silly things to do cosmically. I, I love that. And there's one character we didn't mention as we were doing some of this, this best ofs, which was uh, Sally Reed, um, played by Sarah Goldberg, who I think... I'm going to even, I was going to say fairly or not. I'm going to go with unfairly. I think unfairly has a little bit of the same unfairness that um, uh, the character of Skylar, I can't think of the actress's name, had on Breaking Bad. Uh, Anne Gunn, is that her name? Anna Gunn? Anna Gunn, yeah. Anna um, Gunn. Where the character feels unlikable, despite the fact that a lot of times they're making the right call. Sometimes they're not, right? <laughs> that gets truer and truer for Sally Reed. But like, Sally is like a kind of a, a built-in foil despite being Barry's significant other for much of the series. Um, and I think, again, a really difficult role to pull off and a difficult character to commit to and a really unlikable character in many ways, right? Like she's, she, she does not handle fame well. <laughs> <laughs> no. She, um, she's, uh, even when we think, hey, maybe she's getting a little bit better when she's, you know, she's taking her lumps and she's being the acting coach and then just tries to, to snipe that woman's job. <laughs> a true character study. But man, I, I really thought that, that Sarah Goldberg did a fabulous job with an almost thankless role. Her journey from someone who starts off in this class, not naive, but like very dedicated to her craft to the point where she starts working and achieves her dreams, but it doesn't pan out for her ultimately. And then I'd argue in season four, she's given the ultimate acting gig. Her journey of realizing who she is through all of that in comparison to all the characters that she plays and the producers of those things, Barry being one of them at one point, I think that she did an incredible job with a role that could be difficult, but she sells it and makes it hers. Yeah. She, she starts out feeling like um, maybe a little tropey in that she's supposed to see the best in Barry and try to um, be a shining light. Like the, the one good thing, I guess that he should be moving towards in the beginning of the show. Um, she gets a lot more complicated, a lot, a lot more interesting, but the interesting stuff that she has to do ultimately makes her uh, <laughs> kind of challenging to watch just because of all the stuff she's going through and how she's having to deal with it. Yeah. I think about that moment in season two where she rants at Barry in this one unbroken shot about the fact that she's a better actor than him, but he's the one that got a director audition immediately because he was tall. And <laughs> that moment is so ugly for any character on television, but she leans so far into it and gives it so much oomph that I think it almost is it's like so bad it's good loops back around to oh my god this is stereotype breaking in how deep she is in this role and the fact that she's just saying it to bill Hader, who does not react in that one scene in season two which i thought was funny yeah and, and it's I, the word that i think of with with much of her performance and i know that scene is like earnest like she's not just saying it she hasn't met like she, this is her life and she really feels it she feels every word that she is hurling at him and it's it's a lot uh, I I appreciated about Barry as a series, um, not just this willingness or even eagerness to subvert expectations and to mess with traditional TV tropes, but like some pretty massive time jumps from time yeah. to time, particularly in the final season. 
um, where, you know, enough where you don't even know where you are. Like when we first flash to Barry and family now living off the grid or mostly off the grid, uh, at first you have to wonder, is this, is this a fantasy? Is this really happening? Because it's so jarring and so totally different from everything that's come before. And there are some shows that you would not trust with pulling you along for that ride. But I, I really feel like they, they nailed it over and over again of, of staying very true to their world. There's kind of this bit on the flop house where a famous movie they covered, Bratz movie, uh, has very early on in the movie a two years later title card that just brings down the house every time it comes on in, in a like good, bad movie watch night. And the fact that Barry pulled it off without being silly and speaking of questioning reality, letting you decide, is this real? Is this not? I, for an episode and a half, I did not realize it was actually real. I was kind of half watching and I was like, okay, great. This is interesting. We're learning a lot about his character. Let's get back to present day uh, so that we can follow. Every- oh, oh, we're staying here oh, f- for four episodes. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. I need to rewatch that episode and then move forward from there knowing it's real. It's weird. They they play with us that way. I don't know. I, I did the same thing, Brian, where we get about halfway through that episode and I'm like, are, are they like sticking with this? Is this really happening? And they cleverly enough, um, they've done enough of these dreamlike sequences and it really did feel dreamlike um, where you're just kind of uh, snapping to grid, I guess, assuming that that's what it's going to be. But um, wow, it <laughs> I didn't even know what to expect after that. I guess that's the idea, right? Yeah. And I I there are many memorable moments to me from across the series. I, I have some recency bias where it's season four that is unsurprisingly painted most vividly in my head yes but i can't stop thinking about uh i double checked episode six of season four when that home invasion happens when barry's not there and there's the the creepy body suited man (laughs) following Mm -hmm. sally around uh never makes any physical contact with her and then like i said seems to have uh, a battle with somebody else while she's got her door closed while her kid is i think drunk and passed out yeah. <laughs> because she's given him some alcohol and uh, then juice. a car hits the house and like i don't i still you know the series is over i believe i understand kind of the journey that we went on i don't know what happened in that episode i don't know what part of it is real and i don't and listen you can get into the lost fan mindset or a certain kind of lost fan mindset where like, <laughs> i need answers to every single question um and I would love to know what the creators intended in that moment and in Sally's other hallucinations that we could tell were hallucinations, I think. But like, it's okay that I don't know. And I think that, listen, I would object in school when I was growing up to teachers who were like, let's find forced symbolism in some of these books. Sometimes it's there. Sometimes you know it's there and the author knows it's there. But like, when we're, when we're just cramming ideas in there, that's annoying. But here, I think that Barry is intentionally ambiguous sometimes uh, in a way that is speaking to, if nothing else, this is an awful situation. There's a lot of unease here. Nobody's comfortable. Nobody feels safe. Like that's, <laughs> that's hitting you over the head. But man, what do you think happened in that home invasion? Did the home invasion happen? I just want to know, Brian, Brian. I read that as straight. Like I, I figured that was genuinely what was happening. That was the guy at the uh, restaurant that she like took into the bathroom. And he came in in the morph suit. He locked her in the bedroom. And I imagined him saying, oh, my God, what did you do to me? You got something in my eye. What is that metal? I read that as like, this is the story I will be telling about how you attacked me, but you are locked away and I'm going to trash your place and I'm going to spread this story about you 
hurting me and attacking me when I came to visit your house innocuously. And then someone else in his little posse or whatever drove the car into the house that I read that as not supernatural or a vision or anything. I thought that was him kind of implying he was going to gaslight everybody into believing this BS narrative he came up with. You know, I, I agree. I, I think the, it was that, um, that slime ball from the diner, um, who was being super creepy there too. We'd seen enough of him being just kind of weird and creepy to, um, did did the house move? I don't know. That it it feels like there might be some kind of uh, I don't know amplifying of it. Maybe perhaps uh, due to Sally's. Uh, I mean, she was drinking quite a lot by at, at that point, so perhaps it, it didn't happen. But uh, I I did agree that there was. I assume that most of what was happening that we saw did actually happen. So I would I would tend to Google after some of these episodes to be like, what, what did I just see? <laughs> and it was on Collider, an article that the listener can find if you go for it, where they made the arguments for why it could be real or why it could have been a hallucination. Like the, whoever the intruder is uses an identical line that, uh, as they term it, the motocross goon used when he attacked Sally back in season <laughs> three. So like there were intentional explicit references to prior moments, oh. which again could be coincidence or could not be. Mm. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Uh, Brian Hamilton, you earlier <laughs> referenced the kind of, I forget the, the beautiful term you used, but, but the irony, particularly in season four, I want you to, to plumb that deeper for us. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Jumping right ahead to that final, final shot of, I, were those the kids from Stranger Things, by the way? Oh, it I looked don't. like it. I don't think the, so. Was it? I, I wonder, I'll, I'll Google that when someone else is talking, but that final shot where they're watching this movie. And at the end, we see that Gene Cousineau is in jail for life and Barry Berkman is buried at Arlington National Cemetery with honors is the funniest freaking thing to me in the entire show after everything we've been through, after seeing characters wrestle with the most difficult moral decisions anyone has had to deal with on TV, even more difficult than Breaking Bad, because I don't think very often he had decisions Walt had to make. He just kind of kept the straight the path the entire time. Whereas we see Bill Hader make a lot of decisions. We see Henry Winkler have to make a lot of really difficult decisions. And most of the time they're revealed to be cowards. And a few times they show some backbone and all of that leading to that one title card in that crappy movie that those kids just watched. That's the funniest thing to me about this entire series after we saw these characters go through the worst emotions they have ever seen. And that feel, it feels sadistic for me to say that, but I just think it's so funny how it is structured in that way. I, what I appreciated, where I, where I, some of what I thought you might have been alluding to when you referenced that irony, is Kusino's fatal flaw. Like, Kusino definitely tries to become a better person over time. And um, who's, who's the actor who they say is going to come out of retirement? Daniel Lee Lewis. Um, Daniel Lee Lewis, right? Like <laughs> he flipped his tone the entire time. <laughs> right. Like that's that that's what lures him in and lures him into a, a investigator trap, I guess. But I appreciate that 
part of to me the semi-depressing message of Barry is that people don't really change, right? Like I, I really not struggled with like I didn't believe uh, the narrative device, but I really. I, I was not at all in the mood to forgive Barry, even as he found religion, right? Especially when he was doing uh, podcast shopping until he could find somebody giving me the advice that he was allowed to call people. Um, that was the fuck. <laughs> it's there's there's so much like in, in Judaism, we talk about rabbi shopping, right? Like if you, you don't get like, hey, am I allowed to eat this thing? Or can I do this one thing I want to do on the Sabbath? Even I'm not, and like you keep asking rabbis until you get the answer you want. And Barry was doing that with podcast. Like I, he's he's not good. And he wants to be good, but still isn't good. And even though he can defend all the things he wants to do, uh, he's a bad guy. And then in the end, he is seen as a hero, not just by the world, but by his son, which I know would really matter to him. But he never really changed, even if the, the fiction version of his life has him as a hero. And Gene Cousineau wanted to get better and wanted to be seen as better by his son and instead is seen as guilty of murder and uh, serving that life. Like it's uh, what I appreciated was that so much of TV is about escapism or finding some version of a happy ending or, you know, people changing over time. And I appreciated to me the irony of the story is, no, they didn't change. Uh, their lives changed uh, and things happened to them, but they were the same people and suffered for it in their own ways. Hey, what's up, Christ fam? P- Pastor Brian here telling you it's not a sin to kill someone. <laughs> <laughs> One of the heartbreaking things about Barry as a character is that he genuinely does try to get out of this uh, whole shooting other people situation in the, in the first season or so. And I think that's why I rooted for him early on because I was like, yes, I think he can do it. And, and of course, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm watching TV. I don't think it's going to go this way. <laughs> um, but I, I still wanted it to work out for him. And there's a naivety to Barry that goes all the way through to season four that he he does kind of believe that this is the one last thing I need to do to get out. And that's the heartbreaking thing that like we, we see it before he does that it's really never going to happen for him. And for everybody who watches it, maybe it happens at different seasons or different times during the season. Perhaps someone from season one is like, well, you know, this is a show about a hitman and he's just going to keep shooting people. But I, I think there's like a, a, a hopefulness that does die out eventually for everybody. Maybe that's ironic. I don't know, but it is I think it counts. There, there's also Absolutely. like Barry's last line, I guess, is, is oh, wow, <laughs> right before Kusuno yes. shoots him. And I feel like that line means a lot, too. Like even at the very end, Barry is surprised to realize that Kusuno doesn't love him, that Kusuno, in fact, hates him with a murderous rage, that Kusuno wants him dead, and that he doesn't think that Barry was okay or defensible or forgivable. Like that, oh, wow, to me is Barry being like, oh, really? Like I'm... <laughs> This, this didn't work and he never i guess maybe in that final second he learned the lesson but he is the fact that he is so surprised by it is quite a thing going back briefly to kusno's cop trap uh when he wanted to meet with mark Wahlberg, <laughs> i didn't quite grok this and i would love to get your take on this why did the two hundred fifty thousand dollars that barry gave kusno make the cops think that kusno was the brains behind the operation i watched that scene a few times and i don't quite think i absorbed it Brian Warren, do you want to answer I'm that? I'm thinking. One? I'll take the I'm third part last. At the I, very least, I'll be very happy to know that other people are confused by this. Too. I shared the confusion as I watched. I didn't watch it multiple times, but as I watched it, I did share that confusion. Like I don't understand how these pieces get them to this confusion or to, to this conclusion, rather. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't have an answer for you. 
I, I suppose if if cops are snooping around and they find an unaccounted for $250,000, that will make them start to want to connect dots and assume, I suppose, that that's a part of it. Now, does, does that make Kusinel the brains of the operation to get paid a whole bunch of money? I don't know. Um, but... It at least shows that they are, I guess, if nothing else, you could assume that there was cahoots, right? And that's, that's mm-hmm. the takeaway, right? Money was changing hands. So they were, they were conspiring together. The other thing is that so many cops in this show are just bumbling idiots. And I think it's very refreshing to see the way that cops are portrayed in this world that Barry's created as not the like protectors or the, you know, people who are actually, you know, doing anything worthwhile. They are people who are kind of screwing up the uh, investigation. They raided Dave and Buster's at one point. That was very funny. Uh, I just love that it's their ineptitude that lets Barry get away with so much stuff the entire run. And that kind of leads to that final ending shot of the fake movie within the show of Barry's great and Kusino is serving life in prison. I, in that final episode, there's a, a massive shootout where it starts with Fuchs shooting Noho Hank. And that scene I watched multiple times. And I'm not a, I'm definitely not a, a violence guy. Like I, I often squint and look away at things. I get grossed out by them. But the direction and frankly just the the success in putting it on film or camera or whatever to call it of that shootout is remarkable because after fuchs shoots hank we get one shot of this massive gun battle and i honestly don't know how they pulled it off maybe there's behind the scenes clip somewhere but <laughs> there's tons of shooting there's like body parts flying i guess and, yeah and yeah there's body parts and whatever there's some legs there's some intestines <laughs> And then we watch the camera like slowly pan through it. And Fuchs, of all people, gets a redemptive moment where he helps Barry's son out of the, mm-hmm. the chaos and covers his eyes and is very fatherly towards him and very, I would say, loving towards him in the same way that he at times clearly felt towards Barry himself. Um, but it's that scene is remarkable. And I, I, I finished watching it. And I'm like, wait a second. Was that all one take? And it was all one take. And it's like, how? How? And I still don't know how, but it is it is remarkable. It is a feat of something. I don't know why it had to be that way, but it certainly worked. And it, it's, it's one of those, I appreciate, I didn't know how Barry was going to end. Uh, I appreciate when a show can surprise you, um, but not give you any time to catch your breath, right? Like, um, no spoilers for Breaking Bad, but main characters sometimes die in Breaking Bad and you don't know when that's going to happen. Then when it happens, they don't like necessarily dwell on it poetically. It just keeps going. And here you have this beloved character, Noho Hank, get dead and like you, you knew it was a possibility, but you know what's going to happen. And like there's no time because now there's this massive shootout and now we've got the sun coming out and now we're like <laughs> Barry's son that is, not the one in the sky. And then it just, <laughs> but like there's no time to catch your breath or to to sit with it or to, to there's no time to mourn basically because things keep happening. Story keeps happening. And I, I think there's something pretty remarkable about having the confidence to tell a story in that way. Two things about that final scene. One is that another Breaking Bad parallel, I guess, is the Breaking Bad podcast. Uh, the I, I love the final season of Breaking Bad. I think it's one of the best things that's ever aired on television. My one criticism with the fi- finale of Breaking Bad is that I don't think the final villains he deals with are as interesting or compelling or big or evil as some of the previous villains he had uh, dealt dealt with in seasons prior. I kind of feel that way about the finale shootout of Barry 
structurally, where we've had a lot of violence throughout the series. We've had a lot of big shootouts. We've had a lot of big, incredible production moments like that. And that final shootout was a very, very good shootout. But I think the show is very wise in not hanging a lantern and structuring the entire episode around the shootout. That whole thing must have taken, what, five, six minutes? And then the rest of the episode happens around it. I thought it was very smart to give the final episode a massive shootout but it's not like the one we've been waiting for the entire show because both groups have been fighting the entire time and it's not something that makes or breaks that final episode it makes me feel like they knew they wanted to include it and then gave it all the production value it is warranted and then go away and move on to the rest of the, of the things and i agree with you lex that dear god that one take of all the i imagine practical effects of like you know body parts and limbs and things while fuchs is doing this really incredible fatherly thing really really great moment but the other thing about that moment in particular is that i think barry overall has done the best job of warranting hbo's like tvma rating for comedic effect and for kind of like gross out silliness factor while also being very very impactful emotionally to watch all the blood and guts in that one shot uh all of the uh gore that happens early in the show in season one when barry bends over in season i believe two when he uh like rips out the stitches in his back that was disgusting and the best use of kind of the elevated R-rated things that HBO lets people get away with, I think Barry uses that to the best effect of anything I've ever seen looking at you, Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, I think Succession does it well for language. but I, I'm, And Brian Ward, <laughs> I'm curious for your take on all, on all the things that Brian Hamilton just said, but I want to I wanna very quickly not let you do that and interject to say these three things <laughs> in response to Brian Hamilton. Because Brian, I first of all, that scene that feels so long uh, that shootout, it's it's fewer than two minutes, which is amazing to me. But um, I guess where I would challenge you, or where I at least disagree with you, is I think that in Breaking Bad, we've definitely seen more, because this is a Breaking Bad podcast, and I, honestly, the creative team behind um, Barry made reference quite often to uh, to taking some influence from Breaking Bad. But I think that those that the final season villains were not as... Um, menacing as prior seasons but they were mm. quite possibly the most evil <laughs> they, were, they were quite possibly the most truly evil where they had no loyalty really to anybody um and i felt like the you're right that having this shootout not be the centerpiece but still be a a, a violent work of art um try to pay tribute to hey these were incredible characters who you loved and yeah they went out in a a blaze of glory (laughs) and that's not the focus of our story like it is a part of our story but it's not the center of our story i I, something about it felt very um not fan service exactly but it was like we know you care about these people and we know this will be a difficult moment but it's not even it's not even the focus of this and I, there's something I, I felt like my my hand was being held through it. i felt i felt like fuchs was guiding me through the <laughs> he's covering fuchs is everyone's like, dad that's right <laughs> episode title uh brian warren though your thoughts on all this yeah i think um some of my favorite scenes from the whole or some of my favorite like actiony kind of scenes from the whole series did kind of feel for one, they're really, really well shot. And then also they kind of felt like they played out in real time. And I think that's what, of course, doing a single cut scene like this, where it's a, it's a big shootout. Um, that's how two minutes can start to feel like five minutes. Uh, yeah. and, and it's kind of, um, 
it feels very intense for that reason. Uh, and there are like slower, quieter moments during it, which is just kind of uh, maybe a little more creepy, but really, really cool. The some of the other ones that I really liked were the fight scene that Barry has with the the creature daughter uh, Lily. Um, th- that whole season, th- that whole scene right before it, he's fighting the Taekwondo master guy, um, Ronnie, who he ends up. There's there's even like parts of the action that just happen off. The, the camera doesn't stop shooting, but they'll like have a little fight in a closet and then they'll go around and then he'll like punch him in the trachea or something. <laughs> and then uh, finally it ends with him like doing a, a bunch of nunchuck stuff. But it, it does feel almost slow in that there's not a lot of cuts and the stuff is happening in real time. The other one that comes to mind is in season, I think it's season three or season four. And no, I think it was season three where there's this big chase scene that um, Barry starts uh, in a car, but ends up on a, like a dirt bike kind of thing. And he's being chased like by the, by these other dirt bike, um, assassins. And then they even end up on the highway for a while. And then they go and they end up, there's like a little bit of a shootout at a dealership at the end. Um, that scene also, there were plenty of cuts in it and stuff, but it felt like it again, played out in real time. And there were like quiet moments in between. They didn't have a ton of, you know, the, the born supremacy fast cuts. And there was, there's rarely like a, a ton of like majestic music playing at the same time either. And so um, all that stuff feels really intentional and it gives some of these scenes a little bit of breathing room, uh, but it's really masterful all the while. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner, Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. One of my favorite things about American Idol, Master Chef, Survivor, <laughs> Hell's Kitchen, those kinds oh, wow. of shows are that there is a distinct difference between the beginning and end of a series where, you know, at the beginning, it's 20 chefs all, you know, chopping onions or whatever. And the finale is three chefs. You've seen their journey. There's the final three at Survivor and they do the big final tribal council and things like that. I feel like Barry as an entire series had that ex- not exact same arc, but a similar kind of we start in this acting class with Henry Winkler mentoring Barry and end with f- dark, far future kind of uh, cosmic irony, horror stuff. It felt like, you know, for Breaking Bad, it felt like each season, while, you know, a self-contained story for the most part. The seasons in Breaking Bad kind of felt more like production necessities where like we need to budget and write for this season, then this season, then this season. Overall, you can kind of marathon all of Breaking Bad and it feels like one continuous story, which is great, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. Every season of Barry is so distinctly different that I was so kept on my toes the entire time structurally, not just with the characters, what they're doing, not just with the plot, but with where the hell is this going to go now that there's an eight-year time jump? What the heck is going to happen now that Henry Winkler knows what Barry did to his girlfriend and how is that going to uh, affect everything? If every season of Breaking Bad is like a separate novel, the first season of Barry feels like a comic book, then the second season's a novel, and the third season's a webcomic, and the fourth season's a something. like It feels so different to the point where bringing it all together as a single 
series product that we can stream on Max, it <laughs> feels so special and so I, I cherish this show. It's a gem. And I, I thought, Brian Hamilton, that earlier you made a the interesting point about who do you recommend this show for? And I even wonder that sometimes with with Breaking Bad. When I started Breaking Bad, I watched the first episode after people were raving about the show. I was like, mm, this is not for me. And it took me a couple of years to go back to. And then I really love the show. I'm, I'm on my third watch through now with my my eldest. And we're going to actually probably finish it this week as we record. Um, but... This is this is a challenging show that only gets more challenging. And like, even if you like season one, you might not. I, I certainly have friends who dropped off because it got too much for them or too weird for them or too something for them. Um, and when you talk about a, as I said, I think that Barry is a character that you're not supposed to root for. I think Sally is like, as we were talking today, I was thinking, why did Sally choose to go with Barry and I don't know that I can verbalize the right answer. Like mm-hmm. she's even Barry is surprised. He's like, "Yeah, let's go." <laughs> like it's I I don't know if I can explain what motivates her to make that decision. And I've like, got a theory, but we'll wait till after you said. I, I, I want to hear it, but I I when you when I think about how like oh I love Noho Hank. No Hank's a bad dude. <laughs> like I shouldn't love him either. <laughs> He's also really bad. And so like it is. I, I don't mind. Uh, watching bad characters. I love the movie Goodfellas, right? Like you can, you can enjoy the theatricality of these things. I think that why Barry works, I think that Barry only worked for me because of the journey it went on. Meaning because it started as comedy and then moved to use comedy to make it more palatable and also lived in this surreal place. Like I never felt gross watching it, right? Like I didn't like some of these characters. I didn't like most of these characters, but uh, I felt like neither did the show. If that makes sense. Not that the show didn't, um, you know, the the actors clearly are, are not phoning in these performances like we've talked about prior, but the show doesn't want us to root for these characters. Really? The show is well aware that these are highly flawed people in a highly (laughs) flawed alternate version of reality i guess and uh but it's i do struggle with who if you haven't watched this i mean if you haven't watched the show and listen to this podcast i don't know what you're doing but (laughs) if if you did enjoy the series like who do you tell to watch it and that's i don't know how to answer that one but uh brian you had uh, some thoughts on why sally goes with barry she feels insurmountable guilt about the motorcycle motocross thug that she killed that she thinks she's going to get in horrible horrible trouble if she does not have Barry's protection. When the news breaks about um, Barry being put in jail at the beginning of season four, she's like, I wasn't there. I don't know what you're talking about. Wait, what? Sally, what are you talking about? No, I was not there. I don't know what you're talking about. She's covering her tracks. Mm. And she still feels that guilt throughout the entirety of the first half of season four, where if she stays in LA mentoring this very charismatic uh, actor, (laughs) she is scared she's going to go to prison. And I think that is why they go together. Yeah, I believe it. I do have a question for you, Lex. You spent time in L.A., correct? I did. This, I, I have not spent any time whatsoever in L.A. So, but this show feels like something that really does infuse a lot of like L.A. DNA and a lot of maybe not inside jokes, but local bits in it. Is that something that you got as you watch the show? Does this feel like a very L.A. show? It did feel very much of its place in L.A. for me. Um, I didn't, I don't know. I don't recall offhand, like inside LA joke moments, but 
it did feel very much like it wasn't obviously it wasn't LA standing in, but it was it it nailed um the the vibe of LA. Although I think sometimes they had a little bit of fun with um how quickly they could get from place to place within Los Angeles. Because that's why I left LA, because you couldn't get anywhere ever. Um but it's I listen, it's there's there are cliches and stereotypes surrounding aspiring Hollywood <laughs> actors. And this show employs those, I think, but does it in a way that, again, felt to me very grounded. Because I lived in LA for four and a half years, and we left LA for three main reasons. We couldn't afford a house there. We uh, were really tired of how it took forever to drive places. And at least in the crowd we were in, in our very early 20s, it felt like everybody wanted to know who you were connected to and how your status could help theirs, or if it could. And I know these people. Like, I don't know the murderers necessarily, but I, I know these these actors. And like that moment in season four, I guess, where where Sally's got the acting student and is showing, here's how she should deliver this monologue and what it should look like. And like takes her focus like literally is i think the the staging of it is she steps in front of the actress who's like way taller than she is and has the role and she, like everything like she is absolutely willing to throw that student under the bus and get the part and everyone knows it and they're all just like moving on like nope we're gonna stick with her and thanks that was great <laughs> but like it's it that part of it felt non-parodied i guess is the way i'd say it like the the students in in Henry Winkler's classes and and these people and personalities felt the only time it ever felt like exaggerated to me was how quickly Sally became absolutely insufferable when she was briefly very successful. <laughs> wow. That is a really good read. <laughs> the, there were a couple parts that felt parody to me, but I'm, but that this is a completely uneducated uh, side of things because I I've never tried to go pitch a show to a studio yet. You know, we'll, we'll see. Um, but there's that, point where they're pitching to bring sally on to like run the writer room for this show the three medusas or something like that <laughs> mm -hmm. and they're the studio person's like well, you know it right now it's more hmm but we we need sally to bring a yeah to it and then there's a hey and then, hmm, you know the, and they keep going back and forth and they're t talking this ridiculous lingo uh but i don't know maybe people do talk like that in hollywood you tell me lex but I, i'm curious uh i recall at the time seeing something because i really did browse the web after every one of these episodes but seeing something that was like that that scene feels like an snl sketch and it doesn't belong here but but it didn't i do think that it was you know exaggerated for comedic effect but it didn't feel beyond the realm of believability uh there are there are so many like listen i uh, most of my entertainment career was podcast focused but i was absolutely in meetings where you would hear dialogue that would fit in that conversation let's say <laughs> you'd hear genuine conversation with people talking about dumb stuff in dumb ways thinking that they were brilliant creative minds so i think it was exaggerated which i think you could also call parodied but it it still felt it still felt reality based to me it did have uh <laughs> Well, it didn't feel like that scene could have ever happened that way. Um, it did feel like there there was it was grounded in things that probably did happen. People did say uh, someone probably was in a meeting that re that they want <laughs> that they wanted to exaggerate and put on a script like this. It was pretty funny. 
in that same vein is that scene about, well, the algorithm decided you're not really in our best interest. So funny to, because that was, I think season three, right? And I watched this all in the midst of the max debacle. So it was very funny to have that scene right smack dab in the middle of me having to sign into a new freaking app on my iPad. (laughs) With entirely new recommendations too. It's pretty, pretty funny. I remember when I launched the new max app, I was like, where did all these shows come from? But yeah, that's neither here nor there. And I guess to this point, if you haven't yet watched Barry and want to do it quick before Max, you know, unceremoniously deletes it for some reason. (laughs) Uh, Are there shows that you feel like, hey, if you liked Barry, you'll also like, obviously we've made multiple allusions to um, Vince Gilligan shows, but are there other things you think of like, hey, this, I like this in the same way that I like this other thing. I'm really just trawling for recommendations. Yeah, if you could give me some of those recommendations, too, I'd really love that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is really an exercise for the listener and or Brian Warren. So, Brian, we all look to you. We welcome your input, listeners, because um, <laughs> it did feel th- there were some elements of this that felt like there were things I had not ever seen before. Like uh, there I can't remember why they're in some Chechen's garage. They're, they're, they're having this um, sit down with a mobster or something. And that, and he says something like, uh, we need to be quiet. Uh, my, my daughter's having a sleepover tonight and we're being too loud. Uh, and that sounds dumb when I say it, when we saw it on the screen, I, I laughed so, so hard. I was like, what show am I watching? I've never seen anything like this before that, yeah. that wouldn't have happened in breaking bad, maybe in uh, better call Saul, but I don't know. The, the two that I think of, neither of which I can full-throatedly recommend, but that I enjoyed much of, uh, Dexter, um, not the same show by any stretch, a lot more procedural, but, but had some, some vibe overlap, especially bad guy who thinks he's maybe not the bad guy. And then, uh, did either of you watch Patriot on Prime Video? Oh, the first that's a season, great example. Second. Very yeah. great show. That's a show that I feel like has a lot... A lot in common with Barry in certain ways, just from a little bit genre bending and bizarre and dark, but comedic. So that's that's the best I can do. You know what? Breakfast breads, a whole spread, that whole repeated bit feels like it could have come out of Barry. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that I, I guess talking about this now kind of strikes me as somewhat relevant is I think you should leave on Netflix has the same kind of what the hell kind of world is Tim Robinson building here where any of this makes sense. We as the audience get to laugh at it, but everyone in the world of the show is kind of rolling with it or kind of buying into whatever bit is being given. And I think Barry has some sense of that. Uh, We've been talking a whole bunch about things like, uh, you know, deadpan things that are given to us as something that if we you know, say it ourselves, is not very funny, but seeing it in the context of the show with the impeccable, creative, funny timing of Bill Hader's direction and all the other performances that were happening. There's so many gems in this show that actually feel a little bit out of I think you should leave. I think my favorite one, because I just rewatched this episode and it stuck with me even when I first saw it, was by law, I'm required to show you these photographs in the jump forward. And so many things were encapsulated in that one bit where in eight years, it is easy enough to get guns in a Walmart in California. And (laughs) the best that the lobbyists could do is cigarette style. This is what cigarettes will do to your lungs to bullet holes given to you at Walmart. (laughs) I just thought it was so dark and so funny. And I had to pause to unpack that for a full two minutes before I could move forward. (laughs) That's my, that was rough. That was dark. (laughs) The, just, just honestly, Barry's treatment of 
Walmart and your ability to buy guns there and stuff as just as built in. All of it felt very dark. Like I, I, I didn't feel like it was the show making a political statement exactly, but I, I thought it was leaning into the, <laughs> to the darkness of its reality. Like because you can in many places go into Walmart and <laughs> buy these guns and be grumpy and nobody says a thing. It's a scary show. <laughs> Very scary show. The other bits in the far future that got me were um, Larry Chowderman, Magical Boy or whatever it was on the animated <laughs> uh, billboard <laughs> next to Mega Girl 4. Uh, I also loved the mention of phone movie. Like we can we can't make a theater movie, but we can probably make a phone movie. Yes. I imagine mm. in eight years in Bill Hader's dystopian future, like. It's not even like streaming versus theatrical release. It's like you watch it on a phone, you watch it on an iPad, you watch it in your HoloLens, or you watch it in your uh, in a movie theater. That also tickled me. Yeah, yeah. This is a show that's short, right? Like th- this is this is even short. I think in in streaming series, right? Each episode was each season was eight episodes, and a lot of these and streaming thirty minute series, episodes too. That's right. A lot of them will do thirteen or thereabouts, and this this was tight, and I really felt like. The single biggest benefit was it never felt like there was filler, including like with lines of dialogue. It really felt like when I rewound scenes to watch again, it never felt like there was puffery. It really felt very tightly crafted. And I love that. Like it just felt like it honored my time and that they clearly worked hard on the crafting of it. And obviously every TV show has tons of time and effort put into creating it and scripting and all those things like i get that but this one it really felt like they they sweat the right stuff um and that it showed that it it worked on the screen because of the amount of time they spent crafting things and i like i said i think that when in quotes only have to do eight episodes like that's that's a help and they really i I, there this is a fascinating show and i I really looked forward to it. And the, the final season was running against or running simultaneously to Succession's final season. I like that show a lot. And they both air, I guess, back to back on Sundays, right? And so then I never watched them live, but I would watch them streaming and would really struggle with which one to watch first. And I think, Brian Hamilton, you were kind of making the point of it's it's such a heavy cliffhanger show and you really you want to know how will this happen? Like what, what will come of these things? So I would always go to, to Barry first, which I would say surprised me every week, <laughs> but I knew <laughs> I, I have to know what happens there first, even though everything we talking about succession, I need to know what's going to happen on Barry. Is Barry going to be okay? I hope not. <laughs> that was kind of the logic. How did y'all avoid spoilers while watching? Oh, good question. I don't talk to other people in my regular day to day. So that, <laughs> and like of the people I text with regularly, I imagine like, uh, Lex is the other Barry fan. And so, and he and I are pretty good about not texting each other anything spoiler worthy. Rage quitting Twitter certainly helped. Um, oh, good point. And yeah, I mean, if I, uh, I was much more prone to risking seeing succession spoilers because it was the kind of show where so many people did watch it in real time that folks thought it was safe grounds to post about socially. But much like Brian Warren, I just did not talk to a lot of people who were watching Barry. <laughs> and if I saw any post that could even have a whiff of something, I would just mute that person, <laughs> mute that person for probably a week <laughs> for my own safety. I haven't seen a single post online in about a month from all the meeting. I didn't know, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I, I, and here's the, the truth of it is, unless I'm at the very final episode where I've, I've waited all the time. I don't hate spoilers the way so many people do. Um, because I really do think it's, 
it's got to be way more about the journey than I don't want to say the destination to be too cliche, but like if it's just about what's the big reveal or what's the thing that's going to happen, like that that shouldn't in my mind be what it's about. I want to see how the story's told. Um, if I can enjoy the rewatch as much or more as the original thing, then clearly the spoilers didn't matter all that much because like knowing what's going to happen, that only happens once. But I, if I find out from you or I find out from watching, it doesn't make a huge difference to me unless, like I said, if it's it's the last episode's there and I'm going to watch it and then I see it 20 minutes before then, that's annoying. But otherwise, like, I, if if I knew about the Sixth Sense twist before I saw the movie, which did happen, <laughs> thanks to a professor in college who spoiled it to it, <laughs> the week it came out, uh, spoiled it to a giant class of film studies, um, oh it didn't it didn't negate my ability to enjoy that movie. It just changed how I experienced that movie. That's my weird side rant on spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> I watched Succession live most weeks and if i was like a day or two behind i would i wouldn't be spoiled but i would see things on social media and i am the like full media blackout avoid all spoilers my roommate who i've also been watching barry with who uh, you know they watched as it aired and i was kind of watching after them uh they came downstairs the other day and sat down and said uh hey have you seen this other show well let me tell you about it structural spoilers but the first scene is present day and then the rest of it is a flashback i was like I've never felt more loved and held by you Uh-oh. than when you said <laughs> structural spoilers. You know me so well. And to that point, the fact that I didn't watch any of season four until maybe a week ago, that I was not spoiled on the time jump is mm-hmm. something I will oh, cherish wow. for the rest of my life that I had that experience of watching at like 2 a.m. the flash forward and realizing, no, this is where the show is actually going from here on in. It's magical moments like that that make me feel grateful that i don't watch trailers or spoilers or anything like that we didn't mention this too much but i as you were talking about that flash forward i the those scenes even though they were part of the reality of the show still felt like such a different reality <laughs> and man uh barry berkman a terrible homeschool teacher like oh. <laughs> Not not up to that job at all. And I was just remembering how mad I was at him trying to do a good thing with his son and how much I hated it. Uh, what was that he said on the phone? Um, uh, Sally asks, what did you two learn today? And he comes back, oh, what did I teach him? Like, it, he's so full of himself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the way he tried to, like, shelter him from weird stuff by just showing him the worst things in the world. That was that was awful. And then he was so excited about his, like, new book about Lincoln or something showing up. In a lot of ways, Barry is such a child in this show. Yes. Um, the shooting other people, maybe not so much. Um, but the <laughs> he he pulls out a lot of really weird lines about being a little kid, and and he just doesn't really get a lot of things that feel so natural to us, just living in normal society, I suppose. But it's it was pretty funny. Um, but <laughs> we 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 homeschool our children here uh and uh, we do it a little bit differently than that and so <laughs> I, thankfully our kids are a little more well adjusted i suppose how do they feel about baseballs <laughs> yeah, you know we don't talk about it it's it's okay <laughs> <laughs> i uh certainly i mean i think bill Hader already had this but now it's even truer that he 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 gets the green light for me like anything he makes i'm going to want to watch yeah I'm curious when the two of you stopped rooting for him. Like for me, I kind of like I was on team Barry uh, season one and then I fell off pretty quick realizing things were not going too well. Were you earlier on than me? Was I being too naive? Did you have more hope? I had no, I I was there with you. Season one, his anger and remorse for having to kill his veteran friend 
I it was like a terrible thing that he did and I also felt for him which is one of the reasons why I love shows like this and Breaking Bad is even though we don't feel like empathy for the characters we feel just enough of a sympathy that we can kind of experience emotions that we hopefully dear god knock on wood uh, hopefully don't experience in our day-to-day lives and so season one Barry I was like rooting for him and hoping he could change and then he kills Janice and I know okay he is irredeemable at this point I am here to see him try to cover his tracks and try to keep his way in the world to the point where I actually really reveled in and enjoyed watching him be on murderers Craigslist in the beginning of season three because I was like okay if he's down on his luck and the worst thing is that he has to play Xbox between killing people that's fine great good for you happy Lex what about you (laughs) I'm still Team Barry. Is that not no? Um, I, <laughs> I I I think I'm going to uh, I'm going to share your answer. It was you know the, probably the season finale of season one. You're like nope. He's he, he clearly is never going to. He he is irredeemable. And really, you should already know. <laughs> I should have already <laughs> known. But uh, I realize that he's just beyond. Uh, beyond repair and impossible to root for by that finale of season one. I'm going to stop rooting for Barry starting no. now. <laughs> uh, whose transformation in the back half of season four was your favorite? Uh, let's start with Brian Warren. Oh, I mean, watching uh Kusinow spiral <laughs> was, um, it, it was heartbreaking, but I'll, I'll say it was, it was delightful in that, I, I really liked how it was written and um, <laughs> especially that whole stuff with Daniel Day-Lewis, like you could see it coming before he could, I suppose. And that was yeah. kind of fun. And yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and say Coos now. How about you, Lex? I'm going to go with uh, John Bergman. Just kidding. Um, I, I'm going to subvert the question not to be rude, but because I think it's my, <laughs> my honest answer, which is I appreciate that hank stays so consistent right like yes. hank is very true to who he is um and i think that's what i found remarkable because like you're saying there's there's so many <laughs> arcs that people have and um hank's arc is to me a straight line which can't be an arc but i i appreciate that hank is unwavering in his hankness um despite everything despite you know tragedy in his own personal life um he stays on a a very direct path of like everything he does is tied directly to his hankness his arc is less of a baseball and more of a bocce ball (laughs) (laughs) and and what's your own answer to your question brian uh, I think my favorite is Fuchs. The fact that we see a little bit of respect for him at the end of episode, what, four of season answer. four. Um, that's when I start to put together, oh, I bet something's going to change for him. He's going to have a much better time in prison. I'm so grateful that we skipped ahead eight years and got to see him be like this crappy, badass, biker, evil person. He's just as scummy as before. And we've seen him kind of chameleon and mask and code shift in different situations talking to the chechens talking to uh the bolivians talking to barry talking to the cops he's this scumbag slithery he reminds me of littlefinger a lot uh from game of thrones he's this like slimy creepy dude and the fact that we see him be exactly the same but much more genuinely himself i think that 
was my favorite. It wasn't even a redemption moment. It was just seeing him finally fully accept who he is and not have anxiety about it because someone only acts like that and chameleonifies themselves when they are people pleasers and when they're trying to alleviate their own anxiety about how they're being perceived by others. And the fact that, A, Noho Hank gave him the Raven, which is a stunning bit of PR, and B, (laughs) that he just kind of said, F it, I'll flip the table, I'll be whoever I want to be in prison. That gives him, in my opinion, my favorite transformation of the end of a season four. Mm. Mm. There's you. You made reference to the the baseball subplot of season four, <laughs> where uh, Barry's son John wants to play baseball, and so Barry subjects him, as Brian Warner is referencing, to watching videos of YouTube clips of kids getting <laughs> severely injured or dead playing baseball. And something about that moment reminded me of the little loved. Brendan Fraser, Alicia Silverstone star Blast from the Past, which also featured uh, Sissy Spacek and uh, Christopher Walken. And uh, Christopher Walken mistakenly believes that we're uh, about to be destroyed by nuclear bombs and so moves his family, including his young son, played by Brendan Fraser, into his bunker. And they live in that bunker for 20 years. (laughs) And the son learns so much and is, you know, ill-prepared when he comes up on Earth and meets Eve, as played by Lisa Silverstone. Of course, Brandon Fraser is Adam. And um, they realize that life has gone on. But Christopher Walken is trying to explain baseball to his son, who's never seen it. And they don't have any videos or anything because of the era that the series is set, or the movie is set. And he's like, but... But why does he have to run to first? And like, why is he out? Like, what is it? And the, this, his inability to understand this concept of this sport until he finally gets to see it live. There was something about that mini baseball subplot in Barry that kept making me think of that, even though it was told very differently. But this just Brendan Fraser's inability, youthful inability to understand why, why is he out? Why does he have to run there? And Christian walks like, because he does. <laughs> like, man. It was there was a sweetness to it. This did not have that sweetness, but it still felt like the same muscle. The fact that Bill Hader chose baseball to be the thing that he pushes back on his son for, you would expect that this character Barry has become is like all American apple pie kind of small town. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps using Chechen blood money to survive in the middle of the wilderness. And the fact that his son, like his, the one thing he wants to do is play baseball. And that is too much for Barry to handle is the perfect encapsulation of how I don't want to say hypocritical, but how controlling he is of this little pod of his especially because so much of his life has been out of control they make mention to moving around a lot i am so curious what their other lives were like before they uh wind up in this home in the middle of nowhere well i i'm grateful to find both of you brian and brian as as people who appreciated barry when brian warren and i talk about sorkin movies you know some of them we we like some of them we don't like some of them we love uh there are a couple where we've said to each other that it's hard to really find a thing to pick on. It's hard to find a flaw. And I think that the, the biggest magic trick to me of Barry is that it's so strong in its own voice, in a voice that it doesn't have peers for because of how I I trying to avoid using the word unique, but because of how um, unprecedented its voice and tone are, that it's, it's hard to find a flaw with it because anything that I can even point to and say, hey, this could have been done better, could have been handled better, probably couldn't because it was all in support of the <laughs> the strange tone and vibe of this show. So I'm not saying, hey, this is a perfect show, 
But also, I can't really point to anything and say, boy, I, I bet they wish they could have that back. Like, there's no moment where it's like, uh, Friday Night Lights season two, hey, let's have people kill somebody and then nothing ever happens from when we abandon that <laughs> plot line. Like, there's, there's nothing where it's like, I bet they wish they could have that back. And I, that's, that's remarkable. Friday Night Lights never thought that anyone would rewatch the show because it it would depend on rerun, reruns in 2004 on ABC. So <laughs> the fact that it's now streamable for everyone makes sense. I feel like Adam McKay, of all people, with, uh, you know, the big short and succession and don't look up. Adam McKay is like if Aaron Sorkin used to write for SNL and then had the career that he had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Oh, man. But uh, I, I have thoroughly enjoyed getting to talk uh, to both of you about this show because I, I like thinking about Barry <laughs> because it really, it bends my brain in a way that I appreciate. I, I, I love TV. Uh, I'm not ashamed to admit it, Brian and Brian. I love television. I love Take great that television. Stand. I, yeah, I will. And I proudly watch you. TV. But this series, like in, in, a, in a way that it occupies by itself, really bent my brain where I could finish each episode and be like, <laughs> not even like what just happened, but like, why? Why just happened? Why? Why did this happen? Why was this the half hour that I just got to see in a way that I really, really enjoyed over and over again? And it, it surprised me a lot, too. You couldn't predict where it was going because it was crazy. Yeah. As in a similar feeling, when some of these episodes, when they just finished, I would just have this grin on my face like, how did you just pull that off? That that does, that seems unfairly good. I, I don't have to agree with everything that all the choices that they made, like in writing the plot or whatever, but I, I cannot fault their execution. And uh, similar to you, like I can't pick apart it and say it's it's not a good show. Like there, there's too much going for it. And it did bend my brain in in ways that I was thankful for. More half hour dramas, please. Yeah. <laughs> so you're calling it a drama. Okay. So noted. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's not a comedy in that it's not easy to watch five episodes of like Parks and Rec, but it also doesn't require the 45 minute to an hour commitment of most of the other shows of this caliber the only other like half hour drama i can think of is homecoming on the amazon prime video i hope there are others i would love to hear more what what you've actually solidified for me and i'm making this more of an aha moment than is fair but we've we've got the the word dramedy and i think this show is the other version of that word that doesn't really exist (laughs) without saying comma (laughs) right like it's it's a it's a comedy drama more than it is a drama comedy to me. So it's it's wow. it's the same genes, Cousineau, but it is it's the other way around. It leads with comedy and ends with drama. Comedama. Comedama, comedama, comma, chameleon, I think is the I'll official call it term. dark comedy. Dark comedy works for me. That kind of uh, introduces that level of uh, drama into it and the maybe the irony that you were talking about before, Brian. It's making me realize how much effed up stuff I laughed at during this show <laughs> talking to y'all. <laughs> well, thank you both, Brian and Brian. Uh, Brian Warren, um, any parting wisdom from you? I'm just so thankful to chat with the two of you. <laughs> and uh, Brian Hamilton? Oh, wow. Barry's last word. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Brian this Hamilton was a lot of fun. I'm so grateful for the chance to talk with one of you. <laughs> not, oh, I'm not saying that, no. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't ask for a better Brian or Brian. So thank you both. And thanks again to Jason Snell and to you, dear listeners of The Incomparable. 